0: Well, we're really excited for the next installment on our series, uh, in the Holy Spirit. I am very excited about this series. And as I think about why people I think are so interested in it, I think some of it's a reflection of an under teaching, but I think more than anything, if you've been in the game for a while and following Jesus, and this is something that you really devote your life to, you realize that it takes more than the flesh. It takes the spirit our flesh will only take us so far. And I think many people, the longer they're in this and they realize the goal is to finish the race. We know that there's only one, only one who will help us cross that line. And it is the Holy spirit. And I am so thankful to cover this series because I think it's going to bless a lot of people. I've had Roland, Dr. Mon If you want to say Mon, how how do you, how do you tell people to pronounce your name?
1: Uh, Mon, Hey, okay. Just making sure.
0: Um, I've I've had you on before. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, Real quickly, he was my uh, first and second semester Hebrew teacher. Um, Man, he called us higher. It was a really hard two semesters, but I would not change it for the world. You are a wonderful man. You are a gifted teacher, and we are so grateful. You're going to help us with this Old Testament perspective and so forth. So welcome back, Roland.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me, and congrats on the success of this podcast.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm excited. Let's launch into our first question. And so I've I've done some New Testament perspectives. Andy Boakje, um, he did uh, kind of a New Testament understanding, being sealed with God's Spirit. What does it mean? Is it a, a deposit, guaranteeing? Um, Dr. Bill Molden, he did a really good job kind of going through the dynamics of listening to the spirit. How do how do we know how do we actually talk to the spirit? How do we listen to the spirit? Nice. And then what you're going to do is you're going to help us with this Old Testament perspective. So let's start out with what was the Jewish understanding of the spirit?
1: Yeah, well great question. Well, let me say first I have much respect for all that you're doing. And I also appreciate that you've taken on this topic, bro, because <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not a common topic of discussion. Mm. So props to you for engaging this less familiar topic. So yeah, well, let me understanding... ask you a brief,
0: let me ask you a brief question on that. Why do you think it's not as common? Because it's important, right? Why I've asked yeah, I, actually, it is. Bill and yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it is. It's such an important topic. I, I think it intimidates a lot of people. There's so many views on it, and even scholars they. Uh they debate on uh a lot of a lot of aspects of Holy Spirit study. And then you got the internet. The internet is a minefield of misinformation mm. about the Holy Spirit. So mm. mostly our understanding or lack thereof can be limiting. But okay. uh yeah, I appreciate you Uh, engaging this topic, because if we don't reflect deeply on this topic, we limit the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we're all aspiring for a deeper understanding, a more nuanced understanding than before. So that'll make our theology more relevant.
0: Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Well, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So Jewish understanding. uh, So in antiquity, Jewish conceptions of the Holy Spirit were different than the Christian understanding. Their definitions were more fluid, more dynamic. The Hebrew word for spirit is Ruach, such a, a, a rich word, talk about multifaceted. So, no English word will suffice to translate the lexeme, the term. So, from the get go, we have to acknowledge the ambiguity. And you say Hebrew, Kyle, so <laughs> you know the issues in translation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Ruach occurs in Tanakh, Hebrew Old Testament, 378 times. And is commonly translated breath, uh, wind, spirit, spirit, lowercase s, uh, spirit, uppercase s. Ruach can mean any of those things or in combination. So even in context, one definition of Ruach doesn't necessarily preclude others. Mm-hmm. Ruach is one of those things that The more you know, the more you realize how little you know. (laughs) See Mm. what I'm saying? So, yeah. But I, I like to simplify things. As a professor and as a minister, I like to simplify things. And if there is one singular concept that might be helpful here, it's the idea that the Spirit of God in the Hebrew Bible is about presence, God's presence. So Ruach is about God being present in the world his amazing, uh, mysterious, ineffable presence. So ruah is more than just wind or breath. So some, some rabbis use the phrase God as spirit, God as spirit versus God is spirit. So when you say God as, that would refer to his presence. So for Jews, God as spirit can mean spirit as a name for God or metaphor for God. You could even say as human experience for God, so that said, you you notice some commonality with the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, but it speaks to the fact that the spirit is not some impersonal force, but someone, not something, but someone with personality, with will. Uh, it's interesting. There's a cognate root in Arabic, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that carries the sense of being wide. So ruah does have a has a wide Semantic range and there's similar cognate in Syriac as well. So overall, the Jewish mind ruach is dynamic. It's it's uh, not intangible, but uh, but it's very real. Not imaginary, but very real. Even if it's invisible or hidden from sight. So I hope that helps.
0: It does. I appreciate you kind of breaking it down in terms of it's not this interpersonal thing, right? So. Years ago, I switched from, when I referenced the spirit, from it to he. And for some people who kind of go in a different direction even from that, they at times will use she. Um, mm-hmm. But regardless, it's more personal than it's objectified. I mean, this is representative of Correct. someone's character, their person. And so really, and we, we may get to this, um, because the Trinity in the Old Testament—that's a whole nother podcast. That's very complicated, I think, and it's—it's—it there's a lot of rabbit trails with that. But we're talking about a person. It sounds like more than a thing. From what correct, you're saying,
1: correct. We're not talking about something like gravity. This is someone with personality, with will, with volition, all the things that you would attribute to a person. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the spirit does have personality and acts, and as we'll see. Uh, i guess we'll talk about later agency as well
0: okay so the next question is and and i think this is this is very interesting is the spirit in the old testament also holy
1: yeah so the concept of holiness in the old testament is huge now the word for holiness is kodesh kodesh has to do with something being set apart or special when something is holy it's described as kadosh so in the hebrew bible Many things are kadosh. You've got holy objects, holy people, holy days. But when it comes to holy spirit, now to get that English phrase, you have to have ruach and kodesh or kadosh in opposition, right? So holy and spirit. And there are only two passages in the Hebrew Bible that have that combination. And they're found... Um, Going to turn there right now. Uh, they're found in Isaiah 63, and uh, I have a paper Bible here, paper Hebrew Bible. That's um, right. Isaiah 63 and uh, Psalm 51. So let me turn there. Isaiah 63, we have a, a poetic portion here. Isaiah 63, verse 10 talks about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, and they rebelled, maru mm-hmm. Vitzvu. They rebelled and grieved. Uh, you could say, uh, saddened, uh, mm-hmm. a lot like Ephesians chapter four. Uh, and it says, et ruach show So, ruach, spirit, holiness. It's literally spirit of holiness of Him. Mm-hmm. So, this is about God. Yeah, it's about God's presence, and he was grieved or he was saddened. Again, it's all part of God's presence, how he had a purpose, but he was grieved or saddened. Now, the other one is in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Here you have a, a poem, and it's interesting. Psalm 51 has three references to Ruach. So it's verse 10 to 12 in the English, verse 12 to 14 in the Hebrew. So it talks about, uh, so David is asking for uh, a pure heart. Uh, and then the first use of spirit is Ruach Nahon, a steadfast spirit. The next verse has Ruach, same thing as earlier, Ruach Kodesh, but It's literally spirit of holiness of you.
0: Hmm. And then
1: it uses spirit again, ruach, uh, niduva, spirit that is willing or spirit or vigorous. So it's interesting, three uses of ruach. The middle one has ruach of holiness. So spirit of holiness, of you, referring to God. So in the Alex text, it would be numa and then hagios or hagion. So overall, even though ruach can mean different things, in the instances when the text refers to God's spirit, it's holy, meaning it's mm. dedicated, it's set apart, and the spirit is holy precisely because it's the spirit of God. Uh, I hope that's clear.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned in your first point, but I, I'm seeing it show up again, is that the, we, context matters, right? And mm-hmm. Unless we look at context, it leads to pretext and proof texting. And so we we have to be mindful that, and especially like, so it's easy to get on Blue Letter Bible, and, and I I remember before I really understood the languages and, and so forth, I knew enough to get dangerous. <laughs> and, and, and really, to me, it's, it's dangerous when we do not understand the context. We start making assumptions. We start making assertions. This is what this means, and this is what this means. And what I'm really hearing you say is, is that it's important to see the context of how God's spirit is used. Now, Number, the the second piece to that is, it sounds like to me that God, if, 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 if it's the spirit of God, even if it doesn't say Kadosh, it's holy, re- regardless. Like, what I'm hearing you say is that he is sort of the originator of it. So, either way it goes, mm-hmm. if it's connected to him, it's assumed right. that we're talking holy.
1: Yeah, because it doesn't, in these instances, it doesn't say Ruach Elohim, it just... It refers to God. It's ta- the person is talking to God, but it says the spirit of holiness of you, your holiness. So yes, wow. it's all about God's presence, who God is. It's all connected to God's character. And you know what? Um, when you understand the context, as what you've mentioned, there's a devotional aspect to this as well, because the idea of Ruach being holy and belonging to God leads us to think, about being holy ourselves. Right. See, our lives are based on ruach. In mm. Ecclesiastes, it is ruach that God gives and takes away. So ruach is about God, but ruach is beyond us. Ruach is around us, and ruach is also within us.
0: Well, and I, I do think this is where context matters, not to nerd out, but like Lev, so heart, um To me, there are times where the Lev, the Ruach are interchangeable, potentially. Um, There's some interchangeable concepts there. Um, Nefesh even, like soul. So it it feels like at times, that's where, you know, when we do our vocabulary flashcards and all that, like you get all these vocab. But then when you get into the text to your point, it really comes down to a basic point. And what I'm really hearing you say before we move on to the next point is it signifies God's presence, He's here, he's with us, we're not alone. He is present. And that feels very powerful from what you're saying. Absolutely.
1: And it shows even the use of the different words uh, taking from the literary context, even the use of those different words, if you try to figure out what what the writer is trying to say, it really moves you because God wants to be involved in our lives. Mm. So there are different manifestations of his presence. But overall, he's the same God who is steadfast, but wants so eagerly to be involved in our lives.
0: Okay, so the next question is, and and we're moving through actually pretty nice. Um, The next question is, how is the Holy Spirit, Spirit present in creation? Now, the reason why I ask this is because you and I as, in, in some ways, New Testament Christians, we are invited into a new creation um, that God its breaking through. It's the already and the not yet. And so this new creation is actively in this moment breaking through but it's connected to creation. Like you and I in this moment, we are being we have been reconciled to our God ordained destiny. We have been reconciled and that God is pledged to when he remakes all things, we are then invited into sort of the total renovation of everything. But it all goes back to creation. And we see that God's spirit is is really almost a lead actor almost to some degree in creation. And, and that theme, the reason why I say this new creation- I love how you say theme, it,
1: lead actor, yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: it, it, it feels like it's a theme that gets started in Genesis right in the beginning and it follows throughout all of scripture, Roland. Am I am I missing that or is that, is that fair?
1: You're, you're absolutely right. And I love that the creation narrative in Genesis mentions Ruach. So okay. yeah, it, it's, it's right there. So uh, maybe we should go ahead and read Genesis. Do it. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know the first verse. Uh, this is a, uh, a memory verse in our Hebrew <laughs> class. <laughs> it, it is, bro. You're it. taking me back. Right? So seven words in Hebrew. We see patterns of sevens and tens in Genesis, right? Genesis 1-2, prompting us that this is a poetic narrative. It's it's stylized for both theology and, and likely liturgy as well. But we won't get into the morphology of the uh, Bereshit, but verse 2, here it gets interesting. Verse 2, now the earth, and now in the Hebrew begins a disjunctive clause. So you've got the vav plus a subject plus a verb. And the point of this uh, this first portion here is to give background information. You're giving background information about what follows. So verse 2 is telling us the state of things before God spoke. So you've got the darkness, uh, uh, the deep, and then you've got the Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God. Hovering over the surface of the waters, but before the spirit of God is mentioned, you've got a description of the earth and you've description of darkness, and it's important to note here the notion common in the ancient Near East that creation is an ordering out, a purposeful uh, arranging of what's of what's already there. It's an arranging of an already existing chaos. So. Ruach is doing this ordering, so you've got ruach Elohim Elohevet. Ruach Elohim, Hebrew construct, translation, spirit of God. Although some other translations would go a wind from God. Hmm. So there's this deep divide between commentators. You've got Vonrad Westerman on one side, <laughs> Gunku and. Skinner on the other side so is it spirit of God wind from uh, wind from God wind of God some propose uh, some propose mighty wind well my opinion uh, spirit of God seems better especially when you consider the verb hovering not mm-hmm. a participle it's a Hebrew participle not best suited to describe the blowing of a wind So I think some stronger manifestation of God or reference to God is the subject here. But it could be both. And if I could digress a bit, modern readers feel that they have to choose one precise definition of the Hebrew, Mm. (laughs) which precludes others. Mm -hmm. But the ancient Hebrew readers were comfortable with a dynamic definition, like I mentioned earlier, which is why I like to simply connect this with presence spirit spirit of God is about God's presence this is God's creative presence an ordering presence if you will so I I would say yeah it could be both spirit and does that make sense
0: it does it it really does I remember when after I took your class I had a penitent class that I took and um one of the things we had to do was really understand the backdrop of what we're seeing this set in the ancient Near East. We had to read the Numalish and Tiamat Marduk, and, and we oh, yeah. had to yeah. compare it. And, and when you really look at how God is calling out a people, I mean, Genesis to me is is very much about identity, and then it, it kind of even orders what we see in Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch. But when you compare it to the ancient Near East, this gives this newly formed people an identity, and it's not just a creation narrative it it it's almost like this is this is telling them who they belong to and Correct. to your point that 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 character this is the character of the god who formed you this is the character of the god who delivered you like this is all within the context of the ancient near east which we don't have time to get into but <laughs> yeah. just just if you could just give a plug for people to maybe kind of like get interested in that like is it sure, sure. is it not an important yeah. piece to it
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as part of my continuing education, I enrolled in a class at Jerusalem University College just on Genesis 1-3. to And it's engineering in costume. It it was fun. So much fun. And I was amazed at how both wind and breath figure much in cosmogonies in early antiquity. For instance, Egyptian god Ptah is a god who speaks things into existence. Uh, when you talk about Amun, he's associated with uh, the uh, deity of sky and wind. And yeah, like you mentioned, those familiar with the epic of Babel and New Ma'elish, wind, you're correct, wind figures in Marduk's defeat of Tiamat, which leads to the creation of heaven and earth and divine beings. So yes, it's something worth getting into. Um, yeah, I like to nerd out with.
0: Yeah, man, that that's why we gotta have a yeah. nerd out episode. This is this is <laughs> yeah. that for all the geeks who are interested in all the like. So okay, so Holy Spirit, present creation. Yeah, we
1: we gotta get back to what the Holy Spirit does. Yes. Uh, at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the Holy Spirit is hovering, uh, and uh, I mentioned earlier the participle that's used. Interestingly, it's feminine. The participle used here is feminine. Because ruah can take on feminine and masculine verbs. It's common gender, but much more in, in feminine. And here's something cool. In Deuteronomy 32, God is likened to a nesher, an eagle, that stirs up its nest and hovers. So it's hovering, same root, rahaf hovering over its young. And it's a wonderful picture of protecting, you know, preparing the nest. And there's a cognate in Syriac uh, that can mean to brood over or to incubate. Hmm. But anyway, all of this is a compelling image of God's supervision, and you find it in Genesis and Deuteronomy, both at the beginning of the Pentateuch and at the end as well. Whoa. So, with regard to the Spirit, there's presence, there's there's supervision, intentionality in this work of Ordering from chaos the spirit is right there in the middle of it working to uh you could say subdue formlessness or disorder Mm. it's a beautiful picture
0: it is and that's the lord i mean to me new testament perspective that's the lordship right? He orders the chaos, the cosmos, this cosmic reconciliation that you and I are invited into goes back to what we see here. There is this absolute chaos going on, and there's only one who can bring order to it. And God invites us into that order. And then we see the rest of the Pentateuch sort of structure around the order that's been created. And it starts with God's spirit. What I love about what you're saying, and I, I like to bring it back to relational, it's not just academic. We're talking about someone who deeply cares for humankind we're talking about someone who has set his spirit the affections of his spirit is set on us and i think that's quite powerful even the analogy you just gave about the the eagle and and the protection and i even think about jesus how he you know he's like a, a hen you know longing to sort of uh his chicks let's, mm. let's protect and so it just feels like Part of what you're getting at is the Holy Spirit, in terms of human beings, the Holy Spirit has a, a desire to protect, to nourish. That's the word I'm looking for, to nourish us. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the order, if you look at the order, so you you've got preparation and then presentation of the chaos, and mm-hmm. then God speaks. It's the same thing that happens when a person becomes a Christian. You see your present state and then the spirit ready, wanting to activate you, your life, to to move you. And then you've got God speaking through his word, right? Mm-hmm. And then you become a new creation. So Genesis is, 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 is actually uh, an outline, if you will, an mm-hmm. outline of what happens to a person when they... Uh, engage with the holy spirit and become a christian and live a life according to the leading of the holy spirit
0: <laughs> <laughs> your summary on that was in- incredible wow i that blows me away i i i hadn't looked at it that way before that is oh that is so rich and helpful yeah because um, god
1: speaks in verse 3 right after the mention of this holy spirit uh, of the spirit God speaks and that's when the word comes in. So it all ties in. I, th- I think it's it's lovely how everything just ties in.
0: The next question is what does it mean when the spirit came upon various characters throughout the Old Testament? I think if there's anything in terms of the Old Testament that confuses people when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's, it. and, and I remember when I was a young Christian, it was like, well, the spirit came on. It did not dwell inside. It did not dwell. It did not inhabit this person. It came upon them. And that's what's different about the New Testament and all this. But in the Old Testament, you see the Holy the Spirit come on characters like Samson and Saul and whoever who are like, I don't know. I don't want to say sketchy, but like sometimes it feels like the Spirit comes on sketchy people. <laughs> Just like that. But at times can be, you know, a sketchy character. But I, I just am kind of interested in where you're going to go with this. So go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it either. But anyway, <laughs> so we've already seen that Ruach is employed in a variety of ways, right? So physical sense, wind breath, but also the des- descriptive sense. Sometimes Ruach is used to describe like a state of mind. So when Numbers says spirit of jealousy or in the prophets go spirit of anger, anger and so on. But so now we're talking about people. Now, in relation to people, the spirit doesn't always come upon or rest on someone. Hmm. So I've been trying to wrap my head around this. The spirit doesn't always come upon or rest on someone. If we were to describe the agency of Ruach in the Old Testament, it has to do with senses, strength, and skills. Senses, hmm. strength, and skills. Senses like faculties, feelings, and then strength and skills. But then particularly when the narrative says the spirit came upon or rushed upon someone, the underlying Hebrew is usually some permutation of a preposition and a verb. The preposition is usually al and the verb typically salah which has to do with succeeding or causing them to do something. So the rush or being overtaken. And the effect is just what you mentioned. So Samson becomes powerful. Gideon and Othniel, they gain confidence in leadership. Saul, you mentioned Saul, he prophesies. So that's the language used. But if you're asking what it means, I would say, yes, it points to a greater purpose. In a nutshell, I would say the purpose is empowerment. Mm. Empowerment. So in the narratives, Ruach empowers key people, especially when you check out the expression Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God. It shows in the context of empowering leaders. So Saul, we already mentioned, I think eight references to him. He's important because he's the first Israelite king. And then craftsmen for the tabernacle setup. Again, very important juncture in Israel's history, Bezileh Elders and then prophets, Azariah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. So there's a sense of the spirit moving so that more people are are empowered. I think of the elders, for example. The elders are empowered by the spirit that had rested on Moses. Elijah is empowered by the Ruach that enabled Elijah. And so uh, again, when we say that spirit is coming on, resting upon, uh, it's to usually to empower them. Now, to your point uh, about the character of these, these people, you're, you're, you're right. Many of these leaders were not the best models of how to lead. And so it gives us a sense that Rua is doing something more. Mm. Rua is actually Ruah's pointing us to the future. Now, I'm not sure if I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, Isaiah tells us about a time when the spirit would rest on a king, a king who would be reliable in the sense that he would represent what the spirit wants. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah 11, right? A shoot, uh, I love Isaiah 11. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. So the Hebrew choter, a shoot, Migeza yisai will come out from the son of Jesse. And, and then it talks about ruach of the Lord, ruach of wisdom, ruach of counsel and might, ruach of spirit and knowledge. So that's Isaiah pointing forward to that time when there would be a king who would be a reliable figurehead, a good representation of the spirit.
0: I have a feeling where you might be going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let me let me do a recap for the audience cuz you know, I think recaps are helpful for me too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um what I hear you saying, well, this is powerful. There is a very diverse cast that the Holy Spirit empowers. And so the key in that is this this concept of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if this is what you're pointing to earlier about agency, but the Holy Spirit by its by his own agency, by his I mean commissions himself to work regardless of the faults of, of who he's working through to get something done. He wants done.
1: Yeah. There's a purpose, right? Right.
0: There's a purpose. Okay. So what I hear you saying in that is that there are times where you can have a leader who is okay, or he makes a, a gross error, but the spirit will still work in the the spirit. Like I think about Samson's last, uh, sort of rally. And the spirit comes on him again, and he didn't even know the spirit left him. That's the great, like the most convicting part of that whole situation with Samson. It, it said, it, it, I can't remember where it was, but it said that he was not aware that the spirit left him. He wasn't aware.
1: Yeah, because yeah, well, you have all these all these phenomena phenomena happening, and when you say the spirit is coming or rushing upon. It could be something that's visible right away. It could result in an altered state of consciousness or at times uh, unusual behavior. So that's, that's what happens. But all of it is purposeful, and uh, we just have to figure out what the, the writer is trying to do when it presents this episode in the work of the, of the
0: spirit. So would you say that the work of the spirit very much would be what we see in terms of visions? uh people caught up i mean think ezekiel like i mean just powerful like insane almost some people would say psychedelic type visions you're saying (laughs) the spirit comes upon and gives gives whoever he's prophesying to because you mentioned prophets you mentioned you mentioned several different folks but the spirit comes in and does things that look very unusual at times Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah well well when we talk about, like you mentioned Ezekiel. Uh, yeah, the spirit moves incredibly in Ezekiel. When, when you talk about the vision, you mentioned the vision. It's the spirit who directs where the wheel should go in that throne of God, right? The spirit directs Ezekiel in his movements. It's the spirit that tells Ezekiel or, or helps Ezekiel up on his feet, lifts him up, and then gives him the vision. The, the spirit gives, uh, sets him down in the valley of dry bones. It's a spirit mm-hmm. doing all, all of that. So the spirit works particularly in uh, the lives of these, these prophets, these key people, uh, for important uh, moments, right? Important moments in their, in their lives. And as it works toward the greater purpose of helping uh, his people the Israelites. Now, at times, when you have this unusual behavior, uh, the, the verbal root is nava, okay, nava, the etymology is deba- debatable. They pro- when they, it says they prophesy, nava is the root, by the way, from which we get navi, prophet. Mm-hmm. And there is considerable latitude in translation. So this is where it can get confusing. Mm-hmm. Be- because in, in its most basic definition, to prophesy is current issues. Now, sometimes, like um, a state of heightened emotion, and uh, like Saul, for, for instance, in First in, in Samuel 10, he was beyond himself, right? Maybe that he's speaking aloud. But the point is there's overwhelming energy there. And it's true. Sometimes there are described self-transcending acts. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that even in First Samuel that within the, narrative, the narrative somewhat strains to find words adequate for what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're not really sure. And that's why scholars debate this. What actually happened? But this is something I tell my students. Majority of biblical references to Israel's prophetic ministry do not involve ecstatic experiences. Hmm. So they do happen, but since the basic definition of prophet is spokesperson, then we have to pay attention to the place of such ecstatic events in the narrative. Now, to be sure, the phenomenon is found generally throughout biblical literature. We find it in Greek literature, but yeah, these, these occurrences, even though considered normal in the eyes of the Israelites, were not common. So again, majority of the biblical references to prophecy don't involve uh, these states of heightened emotion. So does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's just stop for a moment and help people build a, 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 a the, the, the term is a hermeneutic right? It's a science of interpretation. It's, it's how you go about reaching a theological conclusion, not to get all fancy and everything, but a hermeneutic is a way, it's a frame and it's Mm. a way that it's, it's a way that you get to your assertion. And it feels like if someone just picks up their new Testament and then they start seeing all these instances of the spirit and so forth, they can come up with a theology of the spirit that doesn't engage the old Testament. I, I think that's that's part of why I'm having you on is because I actually want to engage this holistically. Mm. Now and and, and and that's that's part of where I think prophecy comes in and and it works hand in hand. So let's talk about some old testament prophecies and then how in the New Testament we see that those sort of materialize.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean you're right, it all ties in. Um, I think if we uh if we backtrack a bit, we had already mentioned that the Holy Spirit is all about influence and empowerment, and we could call it um maybe the experience, uh, the privilege of experiencing Ruach Elohim, right? Uh, which is granted to certain people, and all of it is. Uh, under the rubric of empowerment, there's a sense that there's a higher purpose. Now, when it comes to prophecies, uh, we already mentioned that the Spirit points forward to the Messiah, and so that's that's a, like that's like a whole podcast <laughs> by itself. <laughs> the study of the how the Spirit moves uh, to point people to the Messiah. So, Spirit influence dovetails with the expectation of the messianic king. And so what it's what's exciting is the mess the messiah's actions when when you look at the messiah you'll see that his actions derive solely from the spirit bestowed on him. So we're talking about Isaiah 11 which I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 uh, which Jesus read in Luke chapter 4, right? The spirit of the Lord is on me, so the so ruach is is on me. So the Spirit's leading is focused quintessentially on this Messiah. And so I think that, that lays the, the, the background or the backdrop for things. Ultimately, it's all going to point to Jesus. Yeah. So that's one. The other thing that uh, we draw uh, from in the Old Testament uh, has to do with empowerment. Because the Holy Spirit, if you observe his working, is expanding his influence. Like for Moses, you've got the spirit resting on Moses and it's shared with the elders. The spirit on Elijah is also the spirit, the ruach on Elijah. So it's a widening uh, scope, a a, a widening influence. But then the the vision is for all people, for Mm. all people to be influenced. And since you mentioned Acts chapter 2, that is exactly the point of Joel chapter 2. You see, the prophets talk about the spirit being poured out. And the verbs employed by the prophets uh, describe this image of a liquid being poured out. Ezekiel does that. Uh, Joel does that. Uh, Isaiah has emptied out. So um, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, does connect... Well Peter does that. Peter connects Joel chapter 2 with Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes from Joel 2 and he says I will pour my spirit on all people. It's literally all flesh in the Hebrew, al kol basar. So Peter quotes from Joel 2, well, well it's Joel 2 in English, but Joel 3 in the Masoretic text. But there's that beautiful vision of the spirit being influential for all people, all flesh. This actually ties in with Ezekiel 36 because the spirit will now be in you. I will put my spirit in you. That's what Ezekiel says. All part of God's purpose, all part of God's timing. And the Pentecost event was crucial for that because John says in John seven thirty-nine. by this he meant the spirit. And up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, right? Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So it's all part of God's timing and, and, and God's purpose.
0: I love that you just uh, wrapped in Joel uh, in, in Acts 2. And I'm looking here in verse 17. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Yep. Your yep. sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. We just talked about that. Your old men will dream dreams. Yeah. So you're saying this, this is now materializing when when Peter now in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost, you're saying that, and, and should we take that literally, what Joel is prophesying here?
1: Uh, What do you mean? All people like?
0: So it says your sons and daughters will prophecy. Mm-hmm. It says your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. What is Joel getting at there?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's debated in the um, in the original. Joel doesn't have much to say about not not a lot of exciting things to say, except for judgment, right? <laughs> what stands out in Joel is the is the judgment with the picture of the locusts. But here in this small tidbit, he says. Something about God's purpose widening for all people, and I think the main thing is that He's breaking these boundaries. So mm-hmm. it's not just men, men only, but men and women. It's not just the young, but young and old. So mm-hmm. all kinds of people. I think that's the that's the main point. All of them are going to come together, uh, and that's going to happen because the intention of God is to put His Spirit on all people, and I think this ties into something very relevant today, which is social justice, right? Mm. Because the events of Pentecost uh, unite people in a way that there's like justice. It's like justice for all. Everybody gets involved. So first they speak in tongues in Acts, right? In Acts chapter two, they speak in tongues, meaning intelligible, intelligible languages. Folks from all over the Mediterranean who are strangers who would not normally talk to each other are able to hear the praiseworthy acts of God. So again, Joel is saying the boundaries, are uh, the walls are being broken, no more uh, 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 boundaries. And then, of course, they're baptized. They celebrate their new situation. And so these people start, they They share their homes, they share food, they share prayers, they share teaching, and it's all impacting society. So I think that's what Joel had in mind here, uh, the ever-widening influence of the Holy Spirit. And it ties in with the eschatological gifts of the Spirit, which are mentioned in Ezekiel.
0: Okay, so this is interesting. Do the Dead Sea Scrolls have something to say on the Spirit? Oh man, I'm all ears on this one.
1: Yeah, well, um, I, I I love it, this, this this study.
0: Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls give
1: us a window, right? A window into how the Jews thought, into the different strands of Judaism approaching the first century. And those centuries before Christ, the so-called silent years, were anything but silent. So mm-hmm. this is something I teach in my class uh, in Second Temple Judaism. So I have here the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls in English. Okay,
0: point the, point, point the uh, angle down a little bit. I want to see that again. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. that's the
1: scrolls in English. That's the, yep. yeah. So, uh, I just want to read a sample here from okay. the Community Rule. So, a century or so before Christ. These are the ways in the world for the enlightenment of the heart of man so that the paths of true righteousness may be made straight. The laws of God may be instilled in his heart a spirit of humility, patience, abundant charity. A spirit of mighty wisdom. Later on, it says a spirit of discernment. Um, uh, Another part says he will refine for himself the human frame. He will cleanse him of all wicked deeds with the spirit of holiness. He will shed upon him the spirit of truth. So... Um, So that's just a sample from the community rule. So there are various uses of Ruach in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I would say generally the same uses as the Hebrew Bible, but more frequently the referent of Ruach is the human spirit. So when Ruach is used, it's often used to designate the self or a person's attitude. And all of those that I've, I've read are generally in the Hebrew genitive. It's trying to contrast... Like when it says "spirit of," "spirit of," it's contrasting the spirit of truth versus spirit of blasphemy. You see that uh, in different places with with uh, with Hebrew or Jewish material uh, in the centuries leading up to Christ. Now, ruach in the Dead Sea Scrolls can also denote evil spirits and also the spirit of God. Sometimes it has the meaning of breath, and uh, well, far less frequently, wind. So if you put that all together. Um, what what work is the spirit doing? So they mention spirits during creation. So they're big on that. Uh, One QS does that. The Thanksgiving hymns do that. The spirit is also big with initiates. When a person wants to become part of the Qumran community, the spirit works. Mm. And I think, wow, that ties in with conversion. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and then also there's that esch- uh, uh, there's a eschatology engaged as well. They also talk about the outpouring of the Spirit during the end time. So the Spirit works in all of those things. So uh, largely the same as in the Hebrew Bible: creation, uh, transformation, revealing things, redemption, building community. One thing, though, both in the community rule and Hodeyot, uh, 1QH, they seem concerned about protection from evil spirits, like Mm. bad influence. Mm -hmm. So community rule is very big with this dualistic view. And it's almost like they're asking which kind of spirit is influencing a person. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I found that amusing uh, that uh, they would be concerned about that kind of protection, almost like asking which kind of ruach is influencing you. So, yeah.
0: Let, let me ask a a question that wasn't on the uh, on the list. One of the things in the Old Testament that I always have to just kind of sit with a little bit is... When the spirit of God is working and then when the angel of the Lord is working. And the reason why I say that is because there are times where I'm like, is that God or is that an angel? One of his executive angels, let's say an archangel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like there are times where the spirit comes upon and then there's it's, you think it's God, but it's an angel of the Lord. This is a tangent. I know, but I've, I've got a real scholar on the, on the, on the call here. So I'm like, okay, okay. Um, in the old Testament, I mean, in the new Testament, you don't see that mm-hmm. not the same way, mm-hmm. but in the old Testament you do, even with, um, when Moses in Exodus three, I believe when he's at the burning bush, that wasn't necessarily Adonai. That was the angel of the Lord, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So that that's just kind of a, a sidebar, just kind of wonder in the old Testament. Is there like an interchangeable thing going on between the angel of the Lord? And then at times God's spirit.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I well, there's a book that I would recommend. Yes, <laughs> uh, Michael Heiser has a book. <gasps> yes, well. he just
0: passed yeah. away, by the way. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. So so anyway, he talks about this supernatural r- worldview of the Bible, and it, and it all ties in. Yeah. So I think one of the best ways to understand Malach, a messenger or angel. Is that it? All is under that uh, under all uh, under the concept of God's presence. Mm. So God will manifest Himself in many ways, move according to His divine purposes, using all these agents. Uh, everything is uh, everything is uh, you know has a disposal. So yeah, I would say yes. There's that uh, uh, that that connection, but. I would say that the spirit has a different um, has a different realm, uh, and that malach has to do with more specific uh, instances where God wants to uh, impact certain people. Mm. So I I think this the the sphere of influence of spirit is greater, and that's more prevalent. like I said earlier, for, for empowerment. However, when God chooses to uh, use malak, then it's uh, for a specific uh, incident uh, for specific people only. Uh, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And 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 I've I, I'm gonna get into his stuff a little more. I started kind of getting into it. Um, he passed away, I think, earlier this year, sometime. But he has this uh, this concept of the divine count- council. That I think is worth noting because oh, this is this is a whole nother podcast. But when it says "let us make man in our image," a lot of people will say that's evidence of the Holy Spirit. I disagree. In our image, now it would be easy to say that that's evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but if you do further research, some people push back against that. What Heiser would say is that let us make man in our image is that that's reflective of the divine council. Uh, we're talking broadly. My only issue with that then, and this, I actually asked Michael Burns a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, okay, so we're partly made in the image of the divine council then. So this is where I think a lot of people just say, I'll just put my head in the sand or I'll just stick to the, the greatest hits within the scriptures. Cause it's, some of that just makes your brain hurt.
1: Um. Yeah, when we talk about Salem and Duluth uh, in, in the Old Testament, the use in, in Genesis, yeah, I would say, well, two things. The main purpose of the creation account is not to give a scientific treatise of how things started. Mm-hmm. The main purpose has to do with the superiority of Yahweh or Adonai mm-hmm. uh, uh, with respect to other gods of the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. So, so so that's one and yes it presupposes some sort of divine counsel which we also see in in Psalms and other passages by the way so that's one number two when it uh, when it talks about uh, uh, the us being or, or mankind Adam uh, being created in his image I think the main point of the passage there is that you have an uh, A representative A substitute A representative Someone who is like deputized To act like God Mm. So I I don't think the main issue there Is what composes the image Right, right But rather it's saying Wow, this is exciting Because after uh, 126 and 127 The command is in 128 Is to multiply Subdue the earth So I think twenty six and verse twenty six and twenty seven Genesis one will make sense when you look at the whole the, the whole narrative, and that's what it's pointing to that God has uh, someone who's going to be His representative on Earth. It's like uh, a, a king having a, uh, a divine uh, representative or envoy or rep- um, someone that he sends on his behalf who's going to do his bidding. Who's reliable in that way?
0: That is exactly the the answer. That I, that's that's so good. Um, that's so helpful. And again, you get to the meat of it. You get to the crux of what's going on. Uh, real quickly, the there's an inscription a tel, the, It's called the Telphistoria inscription that gets to what you're talking about, which is this idea that we are stand-ins for the king. There's different inscriptions. As you know, tell Dan. I mean, we could go on and on. There's all kinds of inscriptions back then. But there's a particular inscription, the Tel Fikiriyah inscription that gets to what you're talking about, which is that uh, Salim and the Mut. So so we are made in God's image and, and likeness. What does that mean? It's what you just said. Mm-hmm. That's it. We are stand-ins for the king. We are representatives. And we have been deputized. I, I love that idea, by the way. Um, you just got to it in like... Less than two minutes, uh, so that's very helpful. Because well, I wish now,
1: I could have said it better, but uh, yeah. No, no, no. So are you so saying? There's so many layers to it.
0: <laughs> you're saying that when it says "Let us make God in our image," you're not saying that that's evidence that passage is giving. That's giving evidence to the Trinity, Trinity in that in that statement.
1: Yeah, I, I think we Christianize some of these Genesis texts too much, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we have to go back to what it was written for. And, 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 and you have to understand, it was a tumultuous time in, in Israel's history when these texts were, were being written. So it was uh, after, t- we're, we're talking about the time of the monarchy onwards, so the, the divided monarchy onwards to the exile. So yeah, you have to understand what was going on in their mind. And so it leads, to, it leads us to think of the greater purpose and the message that they had. There is actually a kerygma in, 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 uh, in the Hebrew text. Mm. Uh, so we have to keep those things in mind when we're reading the Hebrew text, avoiding reading Christian concepts into uh, the text.
0: Because that's not how they would have read it. And 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 they were prophesying and looking forward, but within the context of what only had happened then. And and I, I love that you're saying that we can Christianize. I think that that's a really helpful term, by the way. Um, is there anything you want to say about any books, projects, stuff you've got coming down? I, I want people to know you, and I want people to know what you offer, because you offer a lot.
1: Okay, well, well, with regard to books, if you are – uh, if you are someone who wants to study out Genesis uh, and, um, uh, well, Robert Hybert has a, a series on Genesis uh, through the Society of Biblical Literature. He has a great com- commentary on Septuagint as well, because you want to maybe study out uh, Genesis in the Masoretic text, but also how, or the take of the LXX. Mm. Uh, and then um, Jack Levison has a book, Uh, A Boundless God, The Spirit According to the Old Testament. He tackles the various verbs of the Holy Spirit, breathing, resting, passing, etc. So um, that's, yeah, recommend, highly recommend as well. Then there's one by Rabbi Tinomer, it's called The Breath of Life. Uh, So if you want to study out spirit from a, a Jewish perspective. So, yeah. Um, well, for me, um, well, please check out my social media posts. I'm on Facebook, uh, at Roland Monhead Books. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn, at Roland Monhead. And also, uh, I have a new book coming out soon. Hey. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, the title is Dear Church, Reflections on the Seven Churches of Revelation. Ooh. So, so I tackle Revelation 1, 2, uh, Revelation 1 to 3, using the Old Testament to illuminate uh, the text of uh, Revelation. So it's not in the whole book of Revelation, but just on those chapters, 1 to 3. But uh, I give particular focus to the, the letters of Jesus to the seven churches. So it should be out in spring 2024 on uh, ipibooks.com.
0: I'm going to need that book. <laughs> I'm serious because I preach at like, so I, uh, anyway, we'll talk in a minute offline. Hey, listen, I just want to thank you, Roland. Uh, it, it, I don't know how many time hours zone, different, whatever we have going on. And we've, we finally got this thing going after a couple of different, whatever. We finally got this interview and I am so grateful to have you back. I look forward to having you back again at some point. You are a treasure. And I'm going to tell you what I say to all my guests. We are with you and God is for you. Roland, thank you for coming. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, for everyone, let's prayerfully reflect on this topic. Let's continue study out the Spirit. Uh, you might be surprised at how the Spirit moves in your study. Yeah. Uh, but let's continue to celebrate the continuing presence of the Spirit in Scripture and in our lives. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kyle.